Welcome to Political Misfits on Radio Sputnik, where we bring you news, politics, and culture without the red and blue treatment. My name is Michelle Witte. I'm here with John Kiriakou. We are, of course, all waiting for that affidavit. I think we were kind of hoping we might get it a minute before noon. You know, they were saying on the network uh, news shows, Mm -hmm. any moment now, starting at like 1045, I'm like, are you people new in Washington? Yeah. It's not going to happen any minute now. It's going to be, if the deadline is 12, that means it's going to happen at 1245. Yeah. Or one o'clock. Which is going to be kind of... (laughs) We'll see. We're going to talk about it if we get to see it. Uh, In the meantime, we are also going to talk about this energy crisis in the UK and Europe that only seems to be getting deeper, right? And that honestly, maybe this is either a sort of perverse reaction or this is the correct reaction. But like you start to think like, okay, are we just all sort of falling into some hype, right? Because once a news agency latches onto a story, then everybody yes. only wants to report on that story That's for like right. the next couple of weeks and then it disappears. And you're like, well, what was that ever? Was that <laughs> right. ever a thing? Was that ever real? But it does seem pretty dire. Yeah. Uh, and so we are going to talk about what, it, you know, how the continent and how the UK are, are preparing for this crisis if they are. And also, you know, you had Emmanuel Macron earlier this week telling uh telling the french public that uh the era of abundance we should sort of th- contemplate that the era of abundance is over and now it's a time for sacrifice which has really not landed very well with a lot of people who haven't yes. been enjoying that abundance That's as right. much as some of the rest and of us and remember that abundance was supposed to be multiplied because of brexit mm-hmm. brexit was going to save them billions and billions of dollars mm-hmm. that was supposed to then go to the national health service and everybody knew it was just it was yeah, over in the UK. Yeah. You know, and there's another thing, too. There was a piece in The Guardian yesterday mm-hmm. um, saying that one of the reasons why this is so bad, what, why this energy shortage or coming energy shortage is so bad is that it's finally going to expose to the world just how many people in the UK live in poverty. Mm-hmm. You know? Yeah. Which every time we talk about it blows my mind. Yeah. Right. But it is something like uh, double the, I mean, I have these written down. We're going to talk to our first guest actually about this topic, but uh, this winter, the number of people living in energy poverty is supposed to double. Uh, It says the the average British, British household is going to pay 10% of their income Mm -hmm. uh, on energy. 10% 10%, on energy, which is the threshold for energy poverty. If you are low income, right? So it's just, yeah, it's, it's a, it's a real mess. You have, um, you know, the the Belgian prime minister, I think the Belgian prime minister saying things could be dark, not just this winter, but uh, for the next five to 10 years, you have rolling blackouts in Kosovo already, the first country to start implementing them. So, yeah, it's a God is it feels like wild times unless we are all succumbing to the, um, you know, seductive nature of scary news. Yeah, Um, we are going to talk about. Uh, an online social media influence campaign, mm-hmm. a long running and nefarious campaign that you probably haven't heard about. That's right. Uh, because who was behind it? Oh, it was the U.S. Yeah. Seems to be about as effective as all the other ones they turn up, which is sort right. of kind of proves it also. It's like, oh, yeah, this is consistent, right? You tried to do this. You tried to, like, push this kind of news. Nobody really paid that much attention. But somehow, like, we're not being accused of, like, using simply that lever to... Uh, mm-hmm overturn elections or or uh, destroy democracy in other nations. And this happens Weird. all over the world, too. I remember a, a trip I made to the Middle East in 2009 for the Senate Foreign Relations Committee. I was talking to the defense attache, the U.S. defense attache in Sana'a, Yemen. 
and he was he was bragging to me about this uh, this program that the Office of the Defense Attaché had uh, begun, where they were broadcasting an Arabic language um, talk show mm-hmm. uh, aimed at young people. That was, he he kept comparing it to NPR, mm-hmm. uh, but it was subliminally pro-American. Yeah, and then they would play jazz in between the segments and stuff like that. Yeah, yeah. And I asked him, "Do you really think this is going to convince anybody? Because you because you play jazz on the radio, that's going to convince somebody to be pro-American." Let me also tell you, I don't want to interrupt your story. No, no, that was it. The the American quote unquote jazz that the rest of the world experiences. Is I like jazz, right? I grew up. My dad sure. plays piano. Sure, played a lot of Mine you know too. piano. Yeah, like I, I, I like jazz. I have been in other countries and seen advertisements for like, ooh, a Amer- jazz concert, American band traveling. I think, okay, I'll go to that. I'll go check out that one. It is the worst smooth jazz fusion <laughs> crap. It's just awful. And I sat there thinking, like, this is another reason I am embarrassed to be American here. Um, so we're going to get into that. We're also going to get into Haiti, where uh, there have been huge protests recently. Yeah. Um, and also, I totally miss this, John, but uh, the uh, Organization uh, of American States, the OAS, they issued a report earlier this month where they just said flat out, uh, yeah, everything that's going wrong in Haiti right now is the responsibility and the fault of the international community. We did it. Like We messed it up. It's the result of 20 years of, of failed interventions. And uh, one incredibly wow. damning line is just talk, talking about like what this intervention did and did not do for Haiti. And uh, I want to look up this line. You're going to hear me say it later, but it just was so great. It said, um, uh, this is an international community that thought paying its own consultants would solve Haitians' problems. <laughs> I mean, it is a very straightforward <laughs> report coming out of the OAS. So we are going to talk a little bit about that too. Um, as we await this affidavit. But there's some other stuff that we should mention. We had Jerome Powell, Fed chair. Yes. Talking. This is going to be big news. Yeah. He he was uh, addressing the annual Jackson Hole Economic Symposium. There is nothing really surprising here, uh, as far as I understand it. He basically said, you know, this is the Wall Street Journal breakdown is Powell saying inflation might not have peaked yet. Rate rate hikes are very likely to continue. And uh, yeah, actually, what the Fed is most worried about is stopping these interest rate increases too soon. Yes. Um, Yes. And his comments led to uh, immediate uh, drops in the stock market. Yeah. Uh, Right now, uh, the Dow Jones, which started the day up, Mm -hmm. is down 623 points. The Nasdaq is down 367 points. Mm hmm. He made a little noise about how he understands what we're going through, mm-hmm. saying uh, he he knows this is going to cause people some pain. Uh, he should have said it will cause some people some pain or some you people, people some That's pain. Right. That's right. Uh, he said there will be some softening of labor market conditions, which is a euphemism. Uh, with higher interest rates, slower growth and softer labor market conditions will bring down inflation. They will also bring some pain to households and businesses. You know, I talked to a very close friend of mine last night who's a real uh, real estate agent in um, New Jersey near the beach. And he said the only property that is selling right now is luxury beach property because only rich people can pay cash yeah. for uh, real estate. Yeah. Everybody else, because interest rates have gone up so much so quickly, 
have decided to just sit this out. Yeah. And while they're sitting it out, rents are going up. So they're losing more and more money. Mm -hmm. And the only people keeping real estate afloat are the rich. He said, uh, these are the unfortunate costs of reducing inflation, John, which again, should always have the caveat. These are the unfortunate costs of reducing inflation. The only way we allow ourselves to attempt to reduce inflation, this one mechanism of raising interest rates and dropping them again. Paul Volcker Volcker would be very happy. I think because of Paul Volcker that that this whole thing happens in Jackson Hole. Yeah. 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 He's the one who started it. Yeah. That was a little anecdote I came across. Uh, Update on Zaporizhia, the the giant nuclear power plant in Ukraine. It was reconnected to the energy grid after being disconnected uh, basically overnight. Um, Yeah. Russia and Ukraine both seem to agree that the interruption was due to a fire that damaged a power line. So it seems like this was a preemptive, you know, this was a safety mm-hmm. disconnection. Mm-hmm. They, of course, disagree on how the fire got started. Right. Russia says it's shelling. Ukraine says Russia started a fire at a coal plant. Um, mm-hmm. But, you know, I mean, it is, it, it, this seems to have been a precaution. Energy has been restored. I would hope that neither side has any appetite for sort of the high stakes uh the kinds of high stakes provocations that they each accuse each other of uh, plotting mm-hmm. in mm-hmm. this plant, which we have not yet seen. Right. We just right. are seeing the same old thing, which is shelling that both sides blame each other for. Um, but none of this, you know, so far, none of this stuff that I think people were most afraid of, which is like some kind of some kind of incident in the plant itself. Right. Right. Yeah. And energy restored for the areas around it, which also is a good thing for the people who need that energy. Yeah. Um, Taiwan, Taiwan, making some waves, proposing a pretty big increase to its defense budget, um, raising it by 13%, which is a big jump. That's a huge jump. It's the biggest since 2007 about is, I believe what I saw that would bring it to 2.4% of the GDP. This has been proposed by the cabinet, so it hasn't been adopted yet. Um, and you know, that 2% threshold of GDP, this is something that the U S actively um, encourages it's yeah. they manda- it's mandated within NATO. Yeah. Although only the United States and Greece, and now maybe Germany as of this year, actually meet the two percent. Yeah. Nobody else does. Yeah. Uh, no, it's shocking. Also, like the official the official amount that the U.S. spends on defense as a as a percent of GDP is like three point four percent. Outrageous. Which, yeah, but which also yeah, I, I really wonder also about what is formally classified as defense spending mm-hmm. and what falls under, like, does military aid to countries fall under defense spending? That's a good question. You know what I mean? Because if we are, like, should the billions of dollars that are definitely going to weapons to send to Ukraine, is that not mm-hmm. considered defense spending? I'm sure that it would Because eventually be. that's going to add up to, yeah. you know, a, a, a significant enough chunk, you know, yes. of, of the overall budget, mm-hmm. right? And all of the the weapons that we sell to Saudi Arabia and the military aid that we provide to Israel every year. I just wonder where where it falls and what kind of, uh, you know, sort of uh, yeah. mathematical trickery is done. Did you happen to see that Senator Marsha Blackburn of yes. Tennessee is oh, in yes. Taiwan? Yes, I, I heard that this morning. You know, Marsha Blackburn, every year in the Washingtonian magazine, um, they do a, a ranking of the stupidest members of Congress, <laughs> <laughs> and she's always uh, near the top mm-hmm. of the stupidest. She's just intellectually not capable of being an effective senator. Mm-hmm. And she made a, a gaffe. Uh, she's this hung morning. around, though. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Oh, because mean, she's a Republican in a Republican state. Yeah, there you go. Um, 
but she called uh, Taiwan a country. Mm-hmm. And uh, of course, that set off waves of complaints across China. Just everybody's taking a trip. Mm-hmm. I mean, I just Taiwan's great. Eat, eat some food there. But really, this is wonderful place. Very beautiful. Clearly, I'm sure that they're just like, yeah, they're just flying in and out. Yeah. God, it's yeah. gotta be. It's gotta be a pain. Imagine the traffic. Just the people of Taipei, right? Every other day, there's a like, new giant American me? motorcade hall, you know, uh-huh. stopping traffic. Ugh, I'm uh-huh. sorry. I feel bad. I feel bad. Awful. Yeah. Also, I saw this yesterday, and I saw this because uh, Matt Taibbi yeah. really went to scoop some low-hanging fruit on Twitter, uh, saying, like, what's the wildest tweet this week that you saw? And I was like, oh, man, that's real. That's like, it's a little thirsty, buddy. But it is how I found this gem from the U.S. Marshals yep. who decided to commemorate the Ruby Ridge disaster Unbelievable. in a tweet. I'm going to read it. On August 21st, 1992, the compromised surveillance of fugitive Randy Weaver on a remote Idaho mountain caused pain and heartache to some of the agency's best trained deputy U.S. marshals. One of those deputies, William Francis Deegan, died that day. Oh, the U.S. marshals felt some pain. Right. Imagine. They shot his son in the back. Yeah. They shot his wife. The dog in the back. Yeah. I mean, the wife again, was Randy holding Weaver, his baby. Yeah, I know. And they shot them. But like it was precipitated by yeah. the son and the dog go out. I mean, there was a whole long, yeah. whole long story sure. where like they arrested him and then they let him go back and then they sent him a bunch of different dates for the mm-hmm. court date that he was supposed to appear at. And exactly he's prob- right. Probably, you know, was probably a white supremacist, not a cool guy. Like, you right. know, was definitely hiding out. Yeah. To, alleged to have done, you know, he, he was going to be hauled in for a weapons violation, mm-hmm. right? Which is probably absolutely accurate like mm-hmm. i don't have sympathy with the ideology no, we're not gonna of go have a beer a with the guy no right. no and i don't say you know and if, if he is organizing and like doing st- you know like i can understand how you know there is a uh a responsibility to keep an eye on what people are doing and to not you know not let people uh create compounds where a uh, horrible abuse goes on you know what i mean but this was just botched so terribly badly Right. Every step with every organization that got involved, that they ended up not holding on to this guy and his wife when they had arrested them and brought them in peacefully and then setting off this whole chain of events. Because, yeah, the son and a friend of the son and the dog go out and they encounter these uh, mm-hmm. uh, marshals who are hiding in the bushes. The dog Armed. notices them and they shoot, shoot the they dog shoot the as dog. it's running away from them. Mm-hmm. Yeah, shoot the sun as it's running, and then it sets off this whole, uh, yeah. this whole uh, absolute disaster that they decided to commemorate by mentioning it the one shocking. U.S. marshal who died. You I sent mean, it to me last night. I was just flabbergasted by it. Unbelievable. <sighs> yeah, I did. I like spent a little time this morning refreshing, but it is such a such a convoluted story. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, it just missteps every step of the he way that resulted died. in a bunch of people dying. I, I think he died in the spring. Um, or the winter. It, it was very recently that he that he passed away. Mm-hmm. But they really did him wrong. They I mean, essentially was, murdered his family. Yeah, they just showed up and murdered his family. And again, when they had had him in custody before, you know? Yeah. If you think he's that dangerous, yeah. just, you know, hold him until yeah, his, hold his him. trial. Or his, uh, the, the hearing that sure. you wanted him to come in for. Right? Sure. I mean, right. if you think that, whatever, it's just awful. Just awful and unbelievable that they decided to, to mark it that way. Uh, there's a couple other pieces of news. Today, uh, a judge threw out the D.C.'s um, vaccine mandate oh, for city I, employees. They tossed it out. I missed that. Mm-hmm. 
Wow. Uh, the mayor's office says, okay, well, so far the response has been, okay, we'll comply with the judge's order. The suit had been brought by uh, police, a police union and some other city, city workers unions. Mm-hmm challenging that uh and also moderna is su- suing pfizer oh i laughed out loud when uh, i saw that moderna su- suing pfizer over stealing their uh mrna technology this is after i think there's a i forget now who is involved in this dispute but it's like the um the nih wh- one of these companies is trying not to let the nih uh claim any of it's uh, like they say they were doing dual research, right? But the for-profit company is saying, no, no, no. Actually, literally, they're basically saying we made this breakthrough like after you guys stepped out of the room, <laughs> right? So it's not it shouldn't <laughs> be considered a joint breakthrough, and you have to pay us more uh, to oh to God. use it. Yeah, just really um, whatever. You know, I remember when I was in high school, uh, there were allegations that the Chinese had stolen the the design for the space shuttle. Mm-hmm. And they had a picture of the space shuttle, and next to it was a picture of the Chinese space shuttle, and it looked the same. Mm-hmm. It turned out the Chinese did not steal the plans. It turned out that aerodynamically, scientifically, there are only so many ways you can make a space shuttle, and they're going to end up looking the same. Mm-hmm. It's like a vaccine, mm-hmm. right? It, there are only so many ways that you can make a vaccine that's targeted against a specific de- so disease. Far. They're going to look the same mm-hmm. or almost the same. That doesn't necessarily mean that. Your stuff's been stolen. No, I'm going to slide in one more piece of a, a little bit of good news from yesterday from the from the White House. This headline that I saw float past and forgot to mention, but uh, the White House Office of Science and Technology is moved to make federally funded research free and accessible to the general public, which is cool. That's great. I also think it is funny. This, be. this builds on something the Obama administration did, which is sort of like classic Obama administration. It feels like it uh, had moved to make federally funded research by agencies that do more than a hundred million dollars of research a year free within a year. It's just condition on top of condition. And so the Biden administration has been like, no, it should be whatever amount you're spending on this research. It should be publicly available. So it just means journalists can't, can't, aren't supposed to in the next couple of years pay well things so much, which is good. That's great. Great. Good. I like that. Um, I think we're going to skip this break and, and come right to our next guest. So we don't have to wait too long. Sounds good. We're going to talk, of course, about the state of energy crisis in Europe and the U.K. and talk a little bit about some of these labor movements underway in the U.K. as uh, mail, rail and dock workers protest the bite that inflation is taking out of their um, wages. We are joined for these conversations by Dr. Kenneth Surin. He's a political and foreign affairs analyst. He's professor emeritus of literature and professor of religion and critical theory at Duke University. Dr. Surin, thanks for joining us again. Um, You're welcome. All right. So I think we can start in the UK here. Uh, Today, the British energy regulator raised the energy price cap by 80% meaning the average gas and electricity bill in the UK will rise from just under 2,000 pounds a year to more than 3,500. This is almost triple what it was last year, according to this report in The Guardian. Uh, Reuters, in an analysis of what is happening, says this winter, Britons will spend an average of 10% of their annual household income on gas, electricity, and other heating fuels, as well as vehicle fuel. This is twice the average of last year. Um, The UK charity National Energy Action estimates 8.5 million UK households could be in fuel poverty after October when the price cap increases, which again is double the figure of a year ago. And yesterday, British Gas says it was going to donate 10% of its profits to help its poorest customers pay bills for the duration of the energy crisis, which is a nice idea, uh, but not a solution. 
Um, and so I wanted to ask, you know, this Reuters analysis uh, offers a few examples of what people are doing to cut costs already, like taking fewer showers and not turning on fans, not cooking as much with electric stoves. And so I wanted to just ask, you know, what, what kind of situation is the UK heading into this winter? And how much of the population do you think is really going to be affected? I, I think the estimates are that 25 percent of the UK's population will be in fuel poverty uh, this winter. Amazing. As for what is likely to happen, of course, there are contingencies in play here. Um, A warmer than usual winter, of course, will be a bonus, but we can't count on that, obviously. Uh, And then there is the matter of government policy. Uh, Ever since Boris Johnson resigned about two months ago and the uh, Tory party leadership contest began, Britain has had a zombie government. Um, No one seems to be in charge. Uh, The two leadership contenders have not put forward uh, realistic policies for dealing with this crisis. Instead, they have focused on culture war issues Um, in an effort to boost their popularity, because the uh, choice of the next prime Tory party leader leader, and de facto, therefore, uh, a prime minister will be left to about 160,000 Conservative Party members. Mm -hmm. And for most of them, white, elderly, etc., issues such as immigration uh, and, uh, you know, there's more than a tinge of racism and Islamophobia in uh, uh, the Tory party Mm -hmm. membership. So uh, the two candidates have not really focused realistically on economic issues, concentrated, as I said, instead uh, on red meat uh, issues that are likely to play well with this very narrow section of the British population. Mm. Um, and so we just don't know what they're going to do. Um, they, they really have avoided dealing with the issue of the, uh, the energy crisis. Mm. Um, and then, of course, a lot will depend uh, on the Labour opposition, which has been lame, uh, the running in opposition to the Tory government, as you point out, has been made by a new generation uh, of trade union leaders um, who, strangely enough, um, are enjoying a considerable wave of sympathy from the UK population. One fact is inexorably on their side. Inflation will be running uh, at about 13% next year, according to a Citibank analysis. Um, what the members of these industries, um, rail, uh, the uh, public energy sector, uh, and so on, mm-hmm. are being offered is wage increases of 3 to 4%. Mm-hmm. So I think even someone who is intellectually challenged can do the math and say a wage offer of 3 to 4% won't pay the bills when the uh, when the inflation rate is between 10 and 13%. So I think in a nutshell that's the situation in the United Kingdom. Do you think that, you know, you 
we were talking about these uh, these major uh, strikes, right? Some of the biggest strikes the UK has seen in decades over uh, wages. But, you know, if if the government continues to ignore this uh, energy crisis, you wonder if there will be, you know, more action by the population to to try to force them to do something right, especially looking at uh, a pretty remarkable uh, year for labor action in the UK. Well, yes, I think, you know, uh, really, the public mood is hard to gauge. But if one can look at the way um, grassroots uh, organizations in opposition to uh, inflation and the energy crisis, uh, there are two organizations. Um, One is basically uh, a red strike. Uh, don't pay your bills. Uh, that's attracting some support, but of course the legal jeopardies there are considerable. So, um, but people are still prepared to sign up to an organisation of that kind. Far more significant for me is the organisation Enough Is Enough, which uh, was started by two trade unions. Um, it initially uh, expected about 50,000 people to join the movement. Uh, The membership of the movement, uh, when I checked this morning, is 450,000. They held uh, an all-seats-taken rally in a big concert venue in London a couple of days ago, uh, and people, hundreds of people, couldn't get in. The venue was packed, etc. It was addressed by trade union leaders, And so I think protest movements of that kind are likely to grow. What their ultimate impact will be, of course, is difficult to discern. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, when you're struggling to to stay warm uh, and to put food on the table, uh, you know, that could be, if you like, uh, a militating factor uh, against people taking to the streets, etc., let me ask you also about the European continent and and whether this is sort of j- just the same as what's happening in the UK. Uh, Reuters today reports that energy's share of household spending is hitting record highs across Europe. Uh, the benchmark European gas price is 550 percent higher than oh it's it's God. grown by 550 percent in the past year. In Kosovo, we have rolling blackouts to cut costs. They've already begun. And we have this very ominous headline in Bloomberg this morning. This isn't an opinion piece, to be fair. Um, but it says listening to European electricity traders is very, very scary. Wow. Keeping the lights on in Europe this winter may pray. Prove more difficult than governments are currently admitting. Uh, I know the Czech government has called for an emergency, uh, I believe, an emergency EU meeting on the issue. And so, again, there start to be so much reporting on this that you have to go, Okay, is this are we getting caught up in hype or is there really the potential for things to be much worse than the vague, difficult winter that uh, European leaders will, will talk about? Um, of course, as I mentioned, you know, uh, the considerable uh, impact that could result from a milder than usual winter, uh, people are hoping for it, but of course you mm-hmm. can't count on it mm-hmm. as yet until it materializes. Um, one thing that uh, perhaps differentiates the uh, European situation from the one in the UK is that inflation uh, in the EU countries 
is lower than in the UK. I think as of June, uh, it was running at about 9.5% uh, in the EU countries. Now, um, will it go higher? It may go higher, but it is unlikely to be as high as in the rate of inflation in the United Kingdom. Mm -hmm. So if you're looking for uh, a little source of hope, <laughs> uh, that could be it. Um, but there's still going to be major problems um, stemming from, if you like, the, uh, the, uh, the lack of gas and oil supplies um, from Russia. Uh, that shortfall has uh, to be made up, and there are really no realistic plans to make it up. Germany's Chancellor Schultz uh, was in Canada earlier this week, um, hoping to make arrangements for liquid uh, uh, natural gas, LNG, uh, to be shipped to, uh, to his country. Now, he got uh, expressions of, if you like, um, uh, vague support, but nothing was set in concrete. And the key factor here is that there are no pipelines on the East Coast uh, of Canada that will fetch the, uh, the shale-extracted uh, LNG from its western provinces, Alberta primarily. Uh, pipelines will have to be con constructed, and at least two terminals uh, will have to be built. Um, and none of those will be, even if permission is given uh, in the immediate future for the construction of those terminals, I think Nova Scotia uh, is the area touted for one, uh, and uh, the uh, the other will be um, oh dear, my geography is challenged. The uh, Canadian province immediately to the north of Maine. Um, but even if construction begins on these fairly soon, they won't be on tap by 2024 at the earliest. Um, and then, of course, there are regulatory and environmental impediments to their construction, um, since obviously, uh, you know, um, they will involve the transportation of dirty energy, so-called, um, and their environmental movements that are going to put, put up legal impediments uh, to their construction. Schultz and uh, the rest of the German population can't count on this. Um, he can make some deals with uh, the Middle Eastern countries uh, to have shipments brought to Germany. But then again, um, there are variables here. The key one being that when it comes to energy, the Middle Eastern countries, primarily in the form of OPEC, have operated a price-gouging cartel. Um, and I think people will wish Schultz good luck. Uh, in dealing with OPEC. Right. Um, so I think that is the uh, situation. The rolling blackouts probably will increase. Prices will undoubtedly go up. Um, will they have the impact uh, that they have uh, in the UK? Um, it is hard to say. Uh, President Macron said the other day that uh, the era uh, of abundance uh, 
that we have been accustomed to for decades is coming to an end. Mm-hmm. Uh, what that will translate uh, when it comes to actually to actual policy measures, um, it is it is difficult to say because the era of abundance uh, has really been to the immense benefit of the people who have abundance. And the abundance, uh, if you like, uh, the creation of the abundance enjoyed by uh, the super-rich, or even the rich, has been uh, thrust on the shoulders of those who have no abundance themselves. Mm-hmm. Uh, Macron's neoliberal policies uh, have uh, acted detrimentally uh, uh, on the poor uh, while letting uh, um, the rich classes uh, off the hook. Yeah, I mean, the, Macron's remarks have been getting a lot of attention, and uh, it is pretty—I mean, in some ways, it would be really useful if, as a, an entire society, we could contemplate, uh, you, you know— contemplate uh, changing our attitudes about, you know, what is and isn't abundant and how we should use and regulate things. But as you say, you know, politicians, including Macron, have worked very hard to ensure that some classes of people have enjoyed this period of abundance for a long time and will continue to the bitter end. And the people who uh, are always asked to sacrifice are going to be asked to sacrifice again, right? And so I wonder, you know, what you've seen of the the response to these comments. And also, you know, I mean, it's a stereotype that the French population uh, likes to get out in the streets and express themselves. But, you know, you have the their leaders saying things like this. People are uh, taking some uh, some offense and some umbrage at it. And if uh, the French po- French population isn't able to heat their homes in the winter, you know, you have to wonder if you're going to see protests. If you might start to see uh, labor actions like we're seeing in the UK, although if you pointed out. Uh, Inflation on the continent is not quite what we've seen over in the UK. So, what is going to be the political fallout? Do you think? Well, undoubtedly, well, uh, there will be variations between the different countries. Um, I think I mentioned on a previous show that street action in Germany uh, is basically the prerogative of the extreme uh, left and the extreme right, uh, the middling population, so to speak, uh, with. Uh, recollections of uh, torchlight demonstrations during the Nazi era and so on, uh, does not have a strong tradition of taking to the streets. The situation in France, as you've just pointed out, is different. Uh, There will be more public protests in France, um, without a doubt. Um, A lot will depend um, on the uh, labor movements in those countries. Mm -hmm. Um, and the situation there, I think, has not coalesced to the extent that it has in the UK. There is pretty much a united front in the UK on every, uh, in every union, extending for the, from the unions that uh, operate in the transportation sector to even the criminal bar association. Uh, public defenders are to go on an all-out strike on September the 5th, uh, simply because the income that they received uh, that they received from the government has fallen by 30% in the last two decades. And, you know, they, they're not renowned for their militancy. So the pub, uh, public defenders are going on strike in the UK. Uh, I don't think the situation 
has reached that degree of militancy in Germany and France. But of course, uh, um, public protests in France uh, are far more spontaneous and are not, uh, if you like, organized by movements. Uh, people simply uh, come together and go on the streets and create mayhem. So will we have more of that? Well, you know, there is no crystal ball for this. Uh, we shall see. Let me ask you, Kenneth, also, who is going to get the blame for this? And and is that going to shift over time? Because Macron, you know, is saying we have to make these sacrifices for freedom. There is, of course, going to be a, a, a great effort to make this energy crisis uh, the fault of Russia, right? And I wonder if uh, you see European and British populations continuing to accept that, if they're going to start to shift their blame onto their own governments, if they are going to start to, uh, you know, consider the role of the United States. How successful do you think uh, that European politicians are going to be in carrying this message that this, the pain that you are enduring is, is for freedom, not for anything else? You're absolutely right. That message is already uh, uh, being pervaded uh, by Macron and Boris Johnson. Uh, says this is, you know, this is the price we are paying uh, to save Ukraine, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Now, of course, uh, if you're reasonably uh, well informed, you will know that is absolute hogwash. Uh, price gouging uh, by the energy sector has been going on for decades, in the United Kingdom at least, um, way, way before the Russian invasion of Ukraine uh, was even on the horizon. So I think uh, it, it would just take uh, a few people with access to the media uh, to shoot that one um, down to the ground. Mm -hmm. um, Something has to be done about price gouging, and no amount of bleating about the price that we have to pay for Ukraine's freedom um, is is really uh, going to have any credibility. That was Dr. Kenneth Surin. He's a political and foreign affairs analyst. He's a professor at Duke University. Dr. Surin, thanks so much for joining us. You're welcome. We're going to take a quick break here on Political Misfits and come back to talk about that affidavit that apparently has just been released. Yep. We'll get into that in a little bit more here. We're on Radio Sputnik. We are live in D.C. and we'll be right back. and culture without the red and blue treatment. I'm John Kiriakou here with Michelle Witte. In July and August 2022, right now, Twitter and Meta removed two overlapping sets of accounts for violating their platform's terms of service. Twitter said the accounts fell afoul of its policies on platform manipulation and spam, while Meta said the assets on its platforms engaged in something they called coordinated inauthentic behavior. After taking down the assets, both platforms provided portions of the activity to a company called Graphica and to the Stanford Internet Observatory at Stanford University for further analysis. Their investigation found an interconnected web of accounts on Twitter, Facebook, 
Instagram, and five other social media platforms that use deceptive tactics to promote pro-Western narratives in the Middle East and Central Asia. The platform's data sets appear to cover a series of covert campaigns over a period of almost five years rather than one homogeneous operation. These campaigns consistently advance narratives promoting the interests of the United States and its allies while opposing countries including Russia, China, and Iran. Isn't this exactly what the United States has accused Russia and China of doing? And at noon today, well, I shouldn't say that, minutes ago, how about that? Moments ago, the Justice Department finally released the redacted affidavit used to justify the FBI raid on former President Donald Trump's home at Mar-a-Lago. We're joined by Joe Loria. Joe is editor-in-chief of Consortium News and author of How I Lost by Hillary Clinton. Welcome back, Joe. Thank you very much, John. Joe, uh, I want to start with this story from the Stanford Internet Observatory in Graphica. They found that this that this series of covert campaigns over a period of five years pushed a pro-Western uh, narrative, misinformation on Twitter, Facebook, and these other social media platforms. This is exactly what the United States has accused Russia of doing for years now. Is it even possible to explain the double standard? I mean, it seems to me like this should be major news all over the the media today. It's not. But certainly uh, somebody ought to be asking the government to explain itself. What do you think? I think the big question is why. Why have they finally revealed this information? Mm. It's not surprising, of course, that the U.S. and maybe the U.K., as the Wall Street Journal is saying, were involved in this. Uh, what's surprising is that Twitter and Facebook acted on it. Yeah. And I can't really put my finger on why this is happening. Uh, I have a theory. It's Dostoevsky, crime and punishment. You cannot suppress your guilt mm. for lying and being hypocritical to an extreme degree forever. But somehow the truth will come out uh, of the people doing these things. Uh, and when I say that, I mean social media companies that have been, of course, complicit. Yeah. In spreading essentially lies about Russia being involved in the 2016 election, which we now know is completely false after a $32 million Mueller investigation uh, about Russia targeting, putting bounties on the head of American soldiers in Afghanistan, about the Hunter Biden laptop story that uh, was said was to be Russian disinformation. And then a year or more later, the New York Times admit that that was not true, that uh, the laptop really was in that shop and all that stuff is true. Mm -hmm. So why is this happening now? I mean, the hypocrisy is the middle name, America's middle name. And this is clear to anybody. Got so many examples, cyber warfare. We always hear about uh, a U.S. on the defense against Russian cyber warfare. The U.S. has the biggest offensive cyber warfare capability in the world. Remember when John Kerry said that, which was then the fake invasion of of Donbass in 2014, right. that countries don't, that's 19th century colonial yeah. invasion. Countries don't do that. This was only a few years after he voted for the American invasion of Iraq. But that was after he voted. I can't remember. Before or after he voted for it, remember, he kept right. going back and forth. Biden at the Council on Foreign Relations saying, admitting, boasting that he was withheld a billion dollars in aid to Ukraine if they didn't fire the prosecutor who was investigating his son's company, Burisma Holdings. And then we have Trump impeached for withholding aid because he wanted information on that very corruption of Biden. So it's unbelievable the hypocrisy of the United States that they get away with it is shocking. 
that this actually happened now and reveal that America is involved in disinformation and, and significantly that Russian threats were exaggerated. This, this admits that, that yeah. the Russian threats to Central Asia and Middle East were exaggerated. What I want to see is when they reveal the propaganda being uh, waged against the American people. That's actually one of my one of my questions for you. We first of all, I, we have to assume that this is the CIA, right? After all this. No, C- no, no, we don't know that. The Wall Street Journal said it could be tied to military. That would be the NSA, of course, which is part sure. of the sure. Pentagon. But it doesn't, doesn't matter, really. It's some U.S. agency. And, and we should point out that that it was Barack Obama in 2011 when he signed into law the uh, National Defense Authorization Act that year. Uh, that finally allowed the government to propagandize the American people. So even if Americans had access to these social media accounts and were propagandized, it wasn't illegal. Um, is that what we're looking at here? Propagandization, well, uh, maybe even just spillover uh, of the American people? Well, I think if you look at the close relationship between intelligence agencies and mainstream big media, uh, this was happening uh, through the media way before Obama's moved there. But mm. now it could be done more openly. Yeah. Um, we we were subjected to so many lies about Iraq, about Russiagate, yeah. uh, about so many things, and we will be in the future. We're being t- exposed to lies about Ukraine as if this was not an, an unprovoked, this was not an unprovoked uh, invasion. It was provoked, of course. So this is part and parcel of how the U.S. establishment government works. They constantly want to keep the American people in the dark, uh, to be distracted, to really create uh, what I said in front of the Department of Justice the other day when we had a rally for Julian Assange. This is a pretend democracy. We live in with a pretend free press. So they make up a world that really doesn't exist and try to sell it to the American people. It's a make-believe world behind which the U.S. can commit whatever egregious acts, including crimes, that's in the interests of the American empire um, mm-hmm. it, that's plainly stated. And when you've got WikiLeaks, for example, uh, coming along and revealing that information, well, they threw the guy in jail, maybe for the rest of his life, they're trying to kill him. So it's the propaganda is part and parcel. The hypocrisy is yeah. part and parcel of this. What we saw today, this story about the revealing of, you, of Twitter and Facebook taking down Western U.S. propaganda, I'm afraid is only— uh, a one-off, yeah. and it will have no real major impact. It'll be forgotten. That's what I'm afraid of. But that had happened. I, I agree with that. I agree with that. You know, the the U.S. jumps up and down when Russian companies, and they always they're always identified in the American media as um, companies with ties to the Kremlin. Kremlin linked, whatever. Kremlin yeah. linked, and nobody ever explains what in the world that means. But you know, we, we had evidence that Russian companies spent. Fifty thousand dollars. This is one of my favorite, my favorite uh, 2016 campaign uh, little tidbits. They spent fifty thousand dollars on Facebook ads. Uh, twenty five thousand was spent after the election was over, and of the twenty five thousand, most of them were like you know cat videos and Black Lives Matter uh, uh, advertisements. Um, so there's a Justice Department investigation. They indict these obscure Russian figures that nobody ever heard of, and none of whom are in the United States. They're all in Russia. While at the same time, the U.S. is doing exactly the same thing, or worse even, to target yeah. Russia, China, Iran, that we know of. It's outrageous, but do you think that there's any chance that anything will come of it? 
Oh, they are doing much worse because it's followed up by an invasions of coups. Yes. Which other countries do not engage in. Nowhere near where the United States does. Look, I think the real significance here is American people are trained not to think of themselves as the aggressors. It's always the other mm-hmm, guy. Mm-hmm. Americans You're are right. still the good guys from World War II, which is why the U.S. dresses up all of its aggressive actions in the in the uniform of World War II from 80 years ago. Any leader they want to overthrow, Noriega, Milosevic, Saddam Hussein, Putin, or Hitler. Uh, they, so they're using World War II imagery because that's when the Americans thought of themselves, and they were on the right side, even if Russia— uh, won the war in Europe much more than the Americans or the British did. But that is, uh, they, how long are they going to live off of those fumes of World War II to continually fool yeah. the people in the, in the United States and around the world that America has good intentions like they did in the Second World War and to crush authoritarian regimes when they themselves are acting like the authoritarian regimes like now. They're acting like the enemy that they are saying. They are doing the cyber attacks. They are doing the propaganda much worse than uh, whatever Russia and China and Iran does. So this is the real issue here. Can the U.S. wake up one day and see who we really are and say we are not that World War II good guy anymore? We have morphed into something really ugly, and we've got to realize who we are and change. You know, it's okay to realize you're really not as good as you think you are. Look in the mirror. And a lot of these disinformation warriors, especially after a story like this, might look in the mirror now and see that they're the useful idiots Mm -hmm. for the U.S., Yep. U.S. intelligence. Isn't that the truth? Rather than us, you know, who pro- tried to write what the causes of the Ukraine war are or to show that the Russia is not the threat the United States says it is, which these uh, releases today, what Twitter and Facebook uh, revealed, uh, was all about, that Russia was a big threat to the Middle East, by the way, and Central Asia. And apparently the people there didn't believe it. They got very few shares. But American people believe it more. Maybe not as much as we think. I think American people are smarter mm-hmm. uh, than we, they get credit for. But I, in the Middle East, they didn't buy that at all. But it's it's bought here. Americans think they're still the good guys. This mm-hmm. story and more like it, but there won't be more like it. That's what I'm afraid of. This is a, a dent, a small dent in this. But this kind of more and more of this kind of revelations get Americans to be realistically see themselves as they really are in the world. Yeah. Joe, Mark Zuckerberg gave a remarkable uh, interview to Joe Rogan yesterday. And he said that Facebook algorithmically censored the Hunter Biden laptop story for seven days at the request of the FBI. I was shocked by this, that he actually came, not, not that it happened, but that he actually came out and admitted it. I know you're not an attorney, but, but how is this even legal? Is this not government interference in, in freedom of the press? And how is this not a headline-grabbing story in the mainstream media today? I just looked at that clip before we went on the air here. Uh, again, here's an example. Why is Zuckerberg admitting this? Again, I think yeah, good this question. is an example where they have to eventually tell the truth. People who have done something wrong, who have been lying, liars to maintain a lie, of course, needs more and more lies. And many people can't put up with it. And they eventually told the truth. So he's revealed that the FBI told Facebook not to go with this story. Uh, which we now know was not Russian disinformation at all, is that that was a complete lie. And why did Facebook agree with it, though? He didn't seem really um, chastened by this or ashamed. He was trying to say how much better we are than Twitter. I'm talking about Zuckerberg here, because they didn't stop others from sharing it, but they use algorithms to basically destroy the story from being shared and being known. Yes, this is, if this is true, 
and I I'm sure that it is, you wouldn't say it otherwise, FBI directly engaged in government censorship yeah. of a story, a consequential story in the last weeks of a U.S. presidential election, mm -hmm. no matter who it helps or hurts. That's not the issue here. This cannot stand. I mean, we know this is it should be huge news. Absolutely. And should I hope be. that it will. You know, lots of people watch Joe Rogan, probably a lot more than CNN. Right. Right. So and MSNBC. So it, it may not make it to MSNBC, MSNBC or The New York Times. But we got to maybe start. I focus too much on the big media too. start. I got to understand I that the country is not focusing so much on that. So they will see what Zuckerberg told Rogan and it could have some impact. I know that uh, this just happened minutes ago, mm -hmm. but Michelle and I, while we're talking, we're trying to uh, we're trying to get through the uh, the trying. affidavit. We're trying to read the affidavit. And, you know, in the beginning, oh, at the introduction, you're like, "Oh, okay, All almost right, nothing. Yeah. yeah, almost nothing is redacted." And then you get and into the meat of it. To Ten and, pages. Yeah, literally, literally everything is redacted. <laughs> Basically, it looks like they're saying uh, we have probable cause. Like we we. Figured there was more stuff there because there had been all of these classified documents in the 15 boxes of stuff that you gave us. Yes. So. Yes. And, now and there and somebody said that there's this office that Trump uses. They call it the 45 office mm -hmm. and it's not a vaulted space. And so you can't store classified information in there. And we have reason to believe that there's classified information in there. And Joe, there was something that was revealed just before uh, the affidavit that had us right before the show started. We were laughing out here in the in outside the studio because it turned out that much of what Donald Trump took included his personal correspondence. He saved as souvenirs the letters that he exchanged with uh, Kim Jong-un. Mm -hmm. And the funny thing is that. Rather than send them diplomatically, right, which is the way you do it, um, like you would send it in a diplomatic pouch mm -hmm. to, in the case of North Korea, to the United Nations, and then somebody from the UN, the U.S. mission to the U.N. would give it to somebody from the North Korean mission. Mm -hmm. He FedExed them because he wanted a tracking number <laughs> to see the progress that the letter was making on its way to Kim Jong-un. <laughs> You can't make this stuff up, my God. But anyway, um, you know, they're going to be so many through for them. Right? Yeah, they delivered it. OK, <laughs> they delivered it somehow to North Korea. Um, there are going to be a million questions that come out of this thing. Uh, what exactly did he take? I think the, the count was 187 documents or 187 pages, mm -hmm. something like that. We don't know exactly what it was. We have now a general idea uh, from the affidavit. but. Um, uh, some of the questions are, are why he did it. The bigger question to me is, is he going to be prosecuted for it? You you published this piece that I wrote uh, this morning in uh, Consortium News in which I say that um, I don't think Donald Trump should be prosecuted under the Espionage Act because nobody should be punished under the Espionage Act unless you're working on behalf of a foreign country. But that's just, you know, John's thoughts. This law is on the book. There are 13 precedents in the last 15 years mm -hmm. where the Justice Department actually goes, please. So I don't mean to interrupt. I just saw this caught my eye. Uh, there's a note added by prosecutors in another court filing that says uh, the probe has involved a significant number of civilian witnesses whose safety could be compromised if their identities are revealed. So yes. it really sounds like 
like the janitor at Mar-a-Lago yeah. saying, yeah. hey, guys, That's I don't know exactly if this box should be like. in this closet, right. <laughs> you know, this or golfers coming by for a visit. Yeah. Anyway, yeah. I didn't mean to interrupt you. No, no, just... no, my question is, is this really boils down to a political question. Uh, do you think that the Justice Department is actually going to prosecute Donald Trump under the Espionage Act? Of course, I don't know. Um, you're absolutely right. We don't know what he took and what he intended to do with it. Some people have been comparing Section 793 that it, this would be under if he were charged right. with Julian Assange, who was charged with 793 for unauthorized possession. Exactly. And this, we know what Assange took because he published it. That's right. And we know why he took it, because he wanted to publish it. But with Trump, that's where the similarity ends. We have no idea. Now, will they prosecute him? Look, Sandy Berger... What did he get? He was a for, he former a security advisor for yeah. a misdemeanor yep. for stuffing classified materials in his underwear and right. socks or whatever. And John Deutsch, the, the CIA director, same thing, took a plea to a misdemeanor. Okay. Uh, this is a president who's doing this. And I, I firmly believe presidents are not above the law, no matter what Richard Nixon said about when the president does it, it's not illegal. Mm-hmm. Uh, and other countries prosecute their leaders. It's a high time America prosecutes its leaders. And if However, the Espionage Act is very shaky, and you clearly laid it out in a very good piece for us this morning. Yes, John, thank, thank you. you very much, you. because uh, we have to know what he was going to do with it. Was he going to share it with a foreign power that would really hurt the U.S. interests, not national, so-called national security interests? Well, we don't know that. Uh, it's, I think it's unlikely. He may have wanted to use it for blackmail material, or he didn't know what he was doing. There's a n- numerous examples, but unless they could prove he wanted to actually give it to a foreign power— Right. It's not. It should not be espionage, even though the act is written, the espionage act, so broadly that he could be charged under because he had unauthorized possession since he was no longer president. Just like Assange had unauthorized possession, and other journalists every day who get classified material leaked to them well, or defense information, I, I they hope, can get charged, but they shouldn't. That's yeah. right, and I, I hope they don't charge him because that might even make it a little easier for Julian Assange. We're going to have to leave it there. That was the voice of Joe Loria, who is the editor-in-chief of Consortium News and author of the book, How I Lost by Hillary Clinton. You're listening to Political Misfits on Radio Sputnik. Stay tuned. We'll be right back. Politics and culture without the red and blue treatment. I'm John Kiriakou, here with Michelle Witte. There was a lot of political news again this week, but not just coming out of the primary elections in New York, Florida, and Oklahoma, but in ongoing races as well. First, Democrats seemed to overperform in two special elections in New York, one of which is a Republican plus four district. And polls around the country are showing that more and more people are calling abortion the most important issue in the upcoming midterm elections. And Republican worry is beginning to show. The Senatorial Republican Campaign Committee this week cut campaign spending by $10 million and stopped advertising uh, for the Senate races in Georgia, Pennsylvania, and Arizona. The committee also told donors that J.D. Vance, the Republican Senate nominee in Ohio, is in trouble. And the SRCC sent $22 million to that race. Just that one race. 
Meanwhile, Democrats maintained small leads in Pennsylvania, Georgia, Ohio, and Wisconsin, and slightly larger leads in Nevada, Colorado, and Arizona. But Republicans are ahead in the races in North Carolina and Florida. The latest polls from 538 and from Larry Sabato's crystal ball show that the Republican chances of taking the House remain at 78%, but Democrats' chances of keeping the Senate rose to 76%. We are joined by Ajamu Baraka. We haven't had him for a long time. I'm glad he's back. He's the former U.S. vice presidential nominee of the Green Party, and he's the national organizer of Black Alliance for Peace. Ajamu, welcome back. Glad to be here. It's been a while. Glad to be back. Oh, happy to hear your voice. Before we get to politics, I want to ask you about a provocative tweet that you published this morning. You commented on Joe Biden's assertion that MAGA supporters are semi-fascist. That's the term he used. You asked what I think is a legitimate question about what that makes the 81 million Americans who voted for Joe Biden when Joe Biden stands for American exceptionalism and foreign intervention. I know that you asked it as a rhetorical question, uh, but what do you think the answer is when we've got two parties that just trade power in, you know, election after election, and at least on these big picture foreign affairs and defense uh, issues, uh, there's no daylight between them? Well, I think it it means partially that uh, we've had uh, forms of fascism from the very beginning of this country's history. But what I was getting at also, too, was the the dangerous rhetoric that's that's used today. Uh, Semi-fascist, I mean, what what does that really mean? Does that mean that uh, under the Trump administration, they were semi-fascist because instead of invading fully uh, Venezuela, they just recognized Juan Guaido as the president? I mean, you know, it's a dangerous kind of framing. And so I raise the question, if if Trump and the MAGA forces uh, that support him are semi-fascist, what does that mean for the idea of U.S. exceptionalism, a, a, a doctrine that uh, is fully committed to uh, full-spectrum dominance uh, and has been uh, responsible for some very horrendous kinds of, of activities, from the war in Yemen to, uh, to the conflict, uh, expanded conflict in, in Syria? Uh, the destruction of Libya, et cetera, et cetera. So, you know, we see from the from the, the perspective of the Black Alliance of Peace uh, that the MAGA movement and the commitment to U.S. exceptionalism as two sides of the same uh, uh, imperialist white supremacist coin. Mm-hmm. Uh huh. I think you're. I think you're exactly right. And this is an issue that that most Americans really are not talking about. Uh, Ajamu, we spent a lot of time uh, talking about politics on the show, and one of the ongoing themes is the unhappiness that so many Americans have for the two-party system. We've mentioned that in the 19th and early 20th centuries, there were lots of political parties, and elected officials frequently changed parties or created new parties. Um, Why do we seem to feel that we're stuck with these two dysfunctional major parties. Why did the Greens, the Libertarians, and others have such trouble getting off the ground? Well, I think there's two elements. I think that what we see is the the consequence of of hegemony, of bourgeois hegemony. That is, hegemony works to to define the range of alternatives uh, to it. And usually the result is to to narrow those alternatives to, uh, to almost nothing or 
alternatives that seem to be alternatives, but really just prop up the system. Mm-hmm. So the, the, the normalization of the two-party system has been complete. Uh, the second element of that is that in order to uh, ensure that the two-party monopoly continues, they have constructed election laws across the country uh, that make it almost uh, make it difficult and sometimes almost impossible for non-major parties to, in fact, compete. You know, in your question, you referenced a time in, in U.S. history where there were there were the, the opportunity for more competitive parties. Uh, the the so-called democracy was still developing. The, you didn't have a complete monopoly over the over the state uh, by the uh, the capitalist class. You didn't have the complete corruption of politics by money. Uh, the politics reflected yeah. more regional struggles, and but today that's not the case. Today. Uh, politics is controlled by by the capitalist state, by capitalists, uh, and if you don't have the money to play, then basically you are you really out of luck, and that's part of the the crisis we see with so-called democracy here uh, in this country. Mm-hmm. You know, one of my personal heroes is Eugene V. Debs, uh, not just because of what he stood for, but because of the way he stood up. Uh, to uh, to the Justice Department and to the government, his personal political ideology was never shaken. It was never changed. He was a champion of the little man, um, and and this was a guy that got a lot of votes um, when he ran for president from from a prison cell. Uh, why do we not have people like that? running third parties anymore. You know, I, I traveled a little bit with uh, Gary Johnson, the libertarian uh, nominee years ago. And uh, he said that his biggest complaint was that the libertarian party and the green party didn't have benefactors that the other parties, the Democrats and the Republicans are so wealthy and have so much money coming in that they make it virtually impossible for any other party to compete. And what the two major third parties uh, need is a benefactor. Um, That seemed to me to be uh, too easy of an explanation. You're going to need more than just a benefactor. You're going to need a grassroots uh, ability to organize. You're going to need strategic alliances with things like labor unions, for example. Um, Look how it's done in New York, for example, New York State. You've got the Working Families Party. You've got the the Liberal Party, a conservative party, the Rent is Too Damn High Party, all different kinds of parties. And oftentimes they nominate people who are not the nominees of the of the Republican and Democratic Party. And that system seems to work. Do you think it's possible for a system like that to work elsewhere in the United States? And is it really just an issue of money or is it something deeper than that? No, I think it's. I, I think I think the money issue is important, uh, and uh, so we can't really um, um, uh, get around that. But I think you alluded to the other elements that are even more important, and that is uh, the existence of 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 social movement, of 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 organizations that allow for you to to amplify your positions, that allow you to, in fact, not only to compete in the electoral process. Uh, but to to build alternative structures that represent in a real way uh, popular power and popular aspirations. Uh, We don't have those kinds of structures today. And that's what makes participating in the electoral arena so precarious for so many 
for so many uh, parties that would like to, in fact, compete. Mm-hmm. That their social base is relatively weak, uh, and therefore just uh, maneuvering through or uh, navigating around the electoral laws become incredibly uh, difficult. Uh, I mean, for example, in 2020, staying with the Green Party for a second, going back to the Green Party, one of the reasons why uh, the Green Party did a lot uh, worse than it did even in 2016 was because of the of the roadblocks put put before it. That um, not only did it, did they make it difficult to get on the ballot uh, in those states, in those key states. Uh, where the Green Party appeared to be ready to be on the ballot, uh, the Democrat Party sued the Green Party to, in fact, throw them off. Uh, and so, you know, in, in the Howie Hawkins campaign looked around for for legal assistance mm-hmm. and couldn't even secure them at first. Oh, geez. So this is a kind of structural kinds of and, and political elements you have to deal with when you're trying to to challenge the, the duopoly. So can it work in other parts of the country? It really depends on the states, but we, we cannot be naive in terms of the, the, the degree in which uh, the, the, the capitalist dictatorship is able to uh, frame the range of issues uh, and frame uh, who can, in fact, compete uh, in this so-called democratic process. Uh, the latest polls this week show us that abortion is rising to the top or near the top of issues important for Democrats. And inflation and the economy are the most important issues for Republicans. But at the end of the day, the Republicans and the Democrats agree on things like overseas uh, interventions or military sales, foreign policy and such. Um, Is there any real difference between these two parties on foreign and defense affairs? Or is this really just a, a fight over... Uh, social issues and the economy and uh, and our differences end at the shore. You know, John, isn't it interesting and the, the politics in the U.S. today is such where uh, at one point it was the Republicans who were accused of using so-called social issues right. to, to maintain and to expand their power. But today is, in fact, the Democrats and the Republicans are the ones that are pretending to champion the concerns of, of the working class. Uh, and the issues of the uh, of the economy, um, and that I think is the is the problem in terms of domestic politics that uh, the Democrats have been unable to fashion a a program that would be attractive to uh, to people who are suffering from the economic contradictions mm-hmm. of the system. Mm-hmm. Um, but I would also say too, John, I would slightly challenge the notion that there's unanimity among the two parties when it comes even to foreign policy. Okay. I think that the the the, the various factions of capital um, uh, that are, are competing in the U, in the US domestically, we find the same kinds of, 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 of fights taking place around foreign policy. That those factions of capital that are more uh, uh, targeted, more concerned with the uh, national economy, uh, have real issues with some of the policies being pursued by uh, by the uh, by, neoliberal uh, Democrats, uh, they're not in agreement completely with uh, throwing money at uh, the Ukrainian uh, right, war. Right. Uh, they're raising questions about some of the various interventions uh, around the world by uh, by the U.S. So there's there's more uh, tension there and potential cracks that we might uh, that we might uh, uh, recognize. And that that again, that to me is reflective of the continued and deepening disarray. 
uh, with these uh, ruling class elements. Right. We've seen some very good outcomes in the primary so far for some progressive candidates and then some very bad outcomes for other progressive candidates. There doesn't seem to be a nationwide pattern. Um, for example, Ilhan Omar won renomination, even if it was close, but Mondaire Jones lost renomination. And Mondaire Jones has actually been active in, in writing and passing legislation. Sarah Palin gets pulled into a runoff in Alaska, but a progressive committee chairman then gets walloped in Manhattan. What does this say about the Democratic Party right now? It seems to me like it's struggling for an ideological direction. I think you're absolutely right, John. There is there is real disarray among the Democrats. Um, the the so-called progressives have um, raised certain issues and uh, uh, and challenged the the, the dominant uh, neoliberal faction of the party. Uh, but we also have seen that the so-called progressives have caved on a number of issues, uh, and that's been reflective. Um, not even not just on the national level, but also on the on the local and state level. So we, we're in a period, I believe, of of transition, and the these issues within a Democratic Party, their ability or inability to define for themselves a real identity, is going to continue to play out, especially after they lose the House uh, this fall. Uh, and so uh, the disarray will continue. Uh, but I think there's opportunities for, for, for some degree of shifting, if you will, within a Democratic Party, if the insurgent groups within, within that party uh, really take advantage of it and are really willing to, to push the, the envelope. But I don't see much strategic um, uh, direction uh, from those elements at this point. And the social movements, again, are so weak and disaffected from electoral politics that uh, they're not going to be able to take full advantage of any opportunities that, that may occur uh, once the Democrats uh, lose the, the House. Mm -hmm. Give me your vision for the next two years of the Biden administration if there's a Republican House and a Democratic Senate. Biden will still be able to get his judges uh, confirmed uh, in the Senate, but it seems like the focus otherwise is going to be sending billions of dollars to Ukraine and investigating Hunter Biden. What do you think? I think that um, I think that that there's going to be real. Um, there's not going to be much that's going to get done in terms mm -hmm. of, of governance. I think that the, the Republicans are going to be in a mode of, of revenge. Uh, I think they're going to push back aggressively on what happened with uh, January 6th. Uh, I do think they will look uh, more closely at the Hunter Biden uh, situation. But I don't think that they're going to continue to support uh, the unlimited funds that have been flowing from the U.S. Uh, to, to Ukraine. And I think there will be some pushback on other aspects of, of, of U.S. foreign policy. But I see continued gridlock. Um, but in, in a way, though, uh, you know, if there's anything that does get passed, it would be as a consequence of a, a real agreement among the, the ruling elements. Um, and so... Uh, there'll be some 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 legislation that will be passed, uh, but I think that the working class is uh, in for another two years of, yeah. of of neglect. Yeah, I hate to I hate to say it. I think you're right. Uh, for the first time uh, since Joe Biden was elected president, polls are telling us that a majority of Democrats don't want him to run for reelection. And a month ago, for the first time, 
polls are showing us that a majority of Republicans don't want Donald Trump uh, to run for president. Do you think there's a chance that the two parties uh, may have nominees who are not named Biden and Trump in 2024? I think for the Democrats, most certainly. There's no question in my mind that uh, Joe Biden is not going to uh, to run again. Of course, you cannot admit that now because he would be uh, a, a, a lame, duck. Yep. lame duck president. So uh, on, on the Democratic side, that's a certainty. On the Republican side, it still remains to be seen. I don't see um, I don't see anybody dislodging uh, Donald Trump. Uh, of course, we'll see what happens in the primaries, but uh, I don't see if he's allowed to run. Uh, and that's another question, uh, and a serious one, too, because I think if he's not allowed to run, uh, that's going to that's going to create serious political issues, security issues also in the U.S. But if he's allowed to run, I think he has a very strong, there's very, very strong possibility he will, in fact, become the nominee of that party. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Ajamu, I want to switch over to the January 6th trials for a, a moment. Uh, they're largely dropping out of the news now, but um, there's been a pattern, it seems, of longer and longer sentences. Two defendants in the last couple of weeks were sentenced to 87 months in prison. That's seven, and a, uh, seven years and three months. Those are significant prison terms. Now the Justice Department is asking for a sentence of 210 months, that's more than 17 years, uh, for a defendant by the name of Thomas Webster of New York, because Webster's a former cop and a former Marine. Are the sentences we've seen so far fair? Are they too long or too short? And do you think that they're going to be deterrents? Well, I don't know about the deterrence idea. I think that they're going to, I think they already have uh, begun to outrage many of the supporters of, of Donald Trump and the Republicans. Uh, many of them believe that this is, uh, the entire episode has been an example of a government overreach, uh, that um, the, the tremendous amounts of resources have been used to, to pursue these individuals and most of the convictions have been for misdemeanors. And I, I think that's one reason why now the, the, the sentences have become longer. Um, in fact, it was interesting and almost kind of funny that the longest sentence thus far uh, was for an individual who ha also happens to be black. Oh my. So this next, yes. So the next, to this person who's now facing the 207 months, whatever that, that amount yeah. is, is not is not is not black. So uh, I guess I guess that, that that's their corrective. <laughs> so <laughs> I think it's, it's 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 all of this to me has been a very interesting and dangerous um, uh, exercise. Um, I'm I'm not the right one to talk about this January sixth thing because uh, I just it, to me it just I have no interest in it because to me it's, it's almost irrelevant. I don't yeah. believe this was a so-called coup, uh, nor was it an insurrection. Um, to me, it's been a, a convenient divergence um, and tool uh, used by the Democratic Party. And, and that's why we believe, as we said a moment ago, that once the Republicans take the House back, uh, there's going to be uh, a revenge and their own diversionary politics, if you will. Tell me what's going on in the uh, the Green Party right now. Is the Green Party healthy? Is it seeing a period of, of growth as people look for alternatives to the Democrats? Well, there's there's still struggles within the Green Party to uh, to really define what this party is really going to be all about. 
Um, they're, you know, uh, and but they're still the party still facing um, 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 the kind of opportunism we talked about coming from the two parties. We had a very strong candidate in North Carolina mm-hmm. uh, who was taken off the the ballot mm-hmm. uh, by the authorities. Uh, but there's still struggles taking place politically inside the party to uh, to define what direction does it really go? What kind? What would be is is politics? To meet the the challenges are going forward. Why is it that it's so difficult to to galvanize left support um, in ways that has not been that difficult for say DSA? Mm-hmm. Uh, where are the youth uh, in the party? So these things are still being struggled through uh, within the Green Party. But you know, hopefully, it people will get to a place where they can feel comfortable with with the direction of the party. Uh, and that the party will have a candidate in 2024 uh, that people can galvanize around um, and that uh, there'll be a more uh, uh, vigorous and clear strategy for how to compete on the more important state and local levels also. And finally, uh, Ajamu, tell us uh, what you're working on at the uh, at the Black Alliance for Peace. Well, we are continuing with our efforts to try to revive the anti-war and anti-imperialist movement in the U.S. Mm-hmm. Uh, we have been shifting our work to ex- to expanding our concerns into uh, across the Americas region. Uh, we're developing a campaign uh, for a, a popular uh, uh, support for the CELAC declaration back in 2014 to make the uh, region of the Americas a zone of peace. Um, we are uh, still opposing uh, the conflict in Ukraine and calling for that uh, that conflict to, in fact, end as a, a clear uh, uh, consequence of the of the burdens of that war being shifted to the working class. Uh, so we're still trying to struggle to build a more effective anti-war movement. We would love to see this issue of peace and continue a Pentagon of, of budgeting uh, contradictions to be a part of the discourse. Uh, in the in the uh, uh, fall elections, uh, and we believe it's critical that that in fact happens. So we are still trying to, to build this movement. Uh, we believe that it, in, until we get a grip on militarism, uh, until we undermine the legitimacy of this commitment to full spectrum dominance, uh, then the possibility of a war, not only with Russia but also with China, continues to be uh, a, a a critical uh, point. Uh, that we have to be uh, uh, concerned with, because if there is conflict, all of us are threatened. So that's what we are trying to do. We're trying to build a movement. Indeed. Well, thank you for joining us, Barack Barack Obama. Ajamu Baraka. (laughs) You know what? You're more important than Barack Obama to me. (laughs) That's right. That's who should have been vice president. Ajamu is the former U.S. vice presidential nominee of the Green Party, and he's the national organizer of Black Alliance for Peace. You're listening to Political Misfits on Radio Sputnik. Stay tuned. We'll be back. politics and culture without the red and blue treatment. I'm Michelle Witte. I'm here with John Kiriakou, and I wanted to take a look at what is happening in in Haiti. There were 
pretty big protests earlier mm-hmm. this week uh, against uh, living conditions, basically, yeah. uh, protesting inflation, protesting uh, violence in the capital, calling for uh, Ariel Henry, the prime minister, to step down. Uh, there was also a really uh, surprising OAS report on Haiti issued earlier this month that I want to get into. And I also want to talk about... Um, you know, what is the status of migration from Haiti and how are Haitian migrants treated in the U.S. and elsewhere? So joining us for all of this is Kim Ives. He's editor of the English section of Haiti Liberté. Kim, thanks for joining us. Thank you, Michelle. And hi again, John. Mm-hmm. Welcome back. So, you know, Haiti, it was pointed out during the summit of the Americas in L.A. earlier this summer uh, that the U.S. had chosen not to invite some countries uh, that it accuses of being less than democratic. Uh, Haiti welcomed at the event, of course, despite, uh, you know, serious, very serious questions about the legitimacy uh, of and the constitutionality of the rule of the current ruler, Ariel Henry. As I said, people were protesting economic and social conditions in the country earlier this week. Haitians have also been fleeing the country, taking long and dangerous boat trips to other Caribbean islands and to the United States. And um, remarkably, the OAS has just come out and said, you know what? Basically, this is all the fault of the international community. Sorry. So I wanted to start with the with the current situation, Kim. What have been the results of uh, Ariel Henry's tenure and what kind of changes are protesters calling for? Well, it's a total disaster. And again, yeah, it's not even that there are serious questions about Mm -hmm. legitimacy or constitutionality. He's completely illegitimate Mm -hmm. constitutional because he was essentially appointed by Washington and what's called in Haiti the core group, which is basically the Washington allied uh, embassies and and, um, the... uh, 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 Canadians and uh, some others thrown in, like uh, Spain, etc. And so the core group and the uh, U.S. appointed him two weeks after uh, Jovenel Moise's assassination. Uh, there was a brief power struggle between uh, him and the uh, interim prime minister, a guy called Claude Joseph, who'd been in there. Uh, and his uh, track record has been disastrous because he uh, essentially has been able to take no real steps to bringing about the elections, which are, are the one thing he's supposed to do. Uh, and this is uh, uh, a result of the coalition that he made with what had been the uh, opposition group uh, to uh, Jovenel Moise, a, a group called the Democratic and Popular Sector, SDP. And they basically are holding off another group uh, called the Montana Group, uh, which is an, a kind of a, a vying bourgeois sector uh, who says we can do a better job than Ariel Henry and the SDP. So as a result of this sort of political dysfunction. Nothing has come about in the way of uh, like a provisional electoral council, which is the first step to uh, really getting an election underway. And uh, plus the fact that uh, because there is no president, they can't even get judges in place. They they can't get ambassadors seated, uh, et cetera, et cetera. So the government is just really uh, dysfunctional. And uh, the result has been just a 
total freefall in the conditions of the uh, Haitian people. Inflation is running wild, uh, and uh, uh, even the price of rice has quadrupled in the past couple of weeks. Mm. Uh, and as a result, we uh, see these huge demonstrations taking place uh, on Monday of this week uh, in cities across the country, uh, which is usually the sign that the end is near in uh, as far as Haiti's concerned. Mm-hmm. Talk to us also about uh, whether we are seeing an exodus from the island and then the way Haitian migrants are treated. Uh, There was a report uh, by Doctors Without Borders from about a week ago that estimated that more than 26,000 Haitians have been expelled from the U.S. uh, between September 2021 and June 2022. Uh, In May alone, the U.S. government expelled nearly 4,000 Haitians. They stopped these deportation flights in June, but that doesn't mean that Haitians aren't being uh, turned away at the southern border. And so I wonder, you know, in the midst of these Conditions that you have described, if if you have more Haitians attempting uh, dangerous migrations. Totally. It's a um, difficult choice Haitians face uh, coming up to the U.S. They basically have two routes. One is up through Latin America. They basically take the Pan-American Highway up to the uh, northwestern corner of Colombia, and they usually take a a boat uh, over to uh, that little strip of Colombia that goes up to the Panamanian border. And there's there's no roads between Panama and Colombia, probably a result of the U.S. amputating Panama from Colombia uh, a century ago. So you have to go through this jungle, and it's a it's a nightmare getting through there. There's all sorts of um, uh, uh, ambushes waiting on the path, and uh, you know people are are robbed, sometimes killed, sometimes raped, and uh, it takes about a week to get through it. It's called the Darien Gap. And uh, it's very, very, a lot of people die. Uh, The other route is just about as hazardous, and it's getting in a flimsy wooden sailboat Mm -hmm. and uh, going the 600 miles uh, from uh, Haiti up to uh, Florida. And uh, many people drown. They died about 100 and change uh, died uh, last week. Um, mm-hmm. And so you're, you're seeing um, this very huge exodus, which has been going for the past 40 years. I mean, I did a film 40 years ago on uh, Haiti, uh, uh, which basically had that as the starting point, the exit of refugees. But really, it should be said that these uh, refugees are really the result of the neoliberal policies that Haiti is putting. It's not just Ariel Henry, it's mm-hmm. just uh, the poor governments that have been put in place, but the uh, uh, strangulation of the Haitian economy by uh, the United States. I want to definitely talk about the role of the international community in creating this scenario, but do you think— um I mean, when you consider the the conditions that that Haiti is in right now, it's hard, you know, it it would be hard to deny someone refugee status. And I wonder if you think that uh, Haitian migrants are treated like any other migrants, if if they have uh, extra hurdles to jump through. I mean, we've we've talked already about how— 
the U.S. managed to roll out the red carpet when it came to uh, Ukrainian refugees coming through the southern border, the stories of which have sort of dried up at this point. Um, and people pointing out, you know, that's not exactly what happens if you are a brown or black refugee uh, from Central America or from Haiti or anywhere else who's trying to get, uh, you know, trying to claim asylum in the United States. And so I wonder if you could talk at all about the treatments Haitian migrants uh, get over when they arrive at uh, wherever they are seeking refuge or asylum? Well, again, for these past 40 years, there have often been uh, juxtaposition of, say, Cuban uh, refugees, mm-hmm. Haitian. And many people did put the emphasis on the racial that, you know, most of the Haitians are black refugees. Most of the Cubans are quote unquote white refugees. Mm-hmm. So uh, you do see that. And we saw that, of course, during the Trump years with Stephen Miller, uh, putting in all sorts of um, very clearly racist, racist uh, uh, hurdles. Uh, but I think it's most fundamentally political in that, uh, as we see today, uh, the U.S. is glad to bring in Ukrainian refugees. Uh, any country that is seen to be um, in some way an ally and uh, uh, refugees are seen as some ally, as the Cubans were, uh, since they were fleeing a communist, a socialist country. Uh, so you're shown the door. And maybe if Haiti were to have a socialist government, we would see a change in the policy towards Haitians. But right now, it's the same policy that has been in place since Reagan, when they first put in place the Coast Guard um, cutter um, cordon sanitaire around Haiti. Mm -hmm. Basically, they are able to intercept Haitians on the high seas. This is (laughs) Mm -hmm. under international law, but they intercept them on the high seas and uh, return them to Haiti. And uh, so they they turn them back at the border, at the Mexican border. Uh, uh, And so we essentially see the same policy that has been in place for the past 40 years. Haitians are not allowed. And uh, uh, the the, uh, results are are devastating, uh, not only on the migrants themselves, who often are uh, living in terrible conditions, but in Haiti itself, where you have this uh, total dysfunction. I want to talk now about this um, remarkable statement from the Organization of American States earlier this month that admitted uh, that the international community bears responsibility for conditions in Haiti. And I'm going to read a little bit from this statement so our listeners know what we're talking about. It begins uh, like this. The institutional crisis that Haiti is experiencing right now is a direct result of the actions taken by the country's endogenous forces and by the international community. The last 20 years of the international community's presence in Haiti has amounted to one of the worst and clearest failures implemented and executed within the framework of any international cooperation. It goes on to say that the failure has to do with 20 years of erratic political strategy by an international community that was not capable of facilitating the construction of a single institution with the capacity to address the problems facing Haitians. After 20 years, not a single institution is stronger than it was before. Uh, It was under this umbrella provided by the international community that the criminal gangs that today lay siege to the country fermented and germinated, even as the process deinstitutionalized and political crisis that we see today grew and took shape. 
Then, seeing its failure, the international community left Haiti, leaving chaos, destruction, and violence behind, which is pretty damning. Um, it also says, this is a line I couldn't resist sharing, this is an international community that thought paying its own consultants would solve Haitians' problems, which is a very broadly applicable statement, I would say, not just to Haiti. And so I want to ask one, what what you make of this assessment, uh, what you make of the OAS making this assessment, and then, you know, we'll get into what it might be calling for, because, of course, a confession is not the same as a solution. But how surprising is, is this statement to you? Well, yeah, it was—I um, mean, of course, the OAS is, as the Cubans always say, uh, Washington's Ministry of Colonial Affairs. Mm-hmm. And uh, they were faced with a dilemma. It was obvious. It was so patent. It was so glaring that the U.S., uh, and international community, in other words, those countries allied with it, uh, France and Canada primarily, were responsible for this situation that they couldn't not say it. They couldn't somehow find a way around it. Mm-hmm. They had to admit it. And everybody said, oh, my God, they admitted it. But th- the real kicker was that what was their solution to this? Well, the international community yes. can and make it better, you know? Yeah. So it was kind of a non uh, logical, uh, illogical uh, statement because after saying we've screwed everything up, mm-hmm. now we got to go in and fix it. Mm-hmm. You know, stay away. And that's essentially what the Haitians are saying is. Stay out of here. Keep out of here. And in the demonstrations this week, it's, it, the, the, the hostility of the Haitian people, of the masses, to the U.S. meddling in Haiti and constantly um, coup d'etats, interventions, uh, installing dictators, installing, essentially, that's what Ariel Henry is. He rules by decree and dictate. Uh, Their result is to carry flags of China and Russia in the demonstrations this week, saying, you know, China, Russia, go, go, go. So, uh, as you know, the new world order is taking shape since February. Mm-hmm. Uh, so we um, really are seeing, I could say, the collapse of the old order where the OAS, you know, which has been used since uh, 1965 on the island of Hispaniola when U.S. Marines under the OAS flag intervened in Santo Domingo to put down rebellion there. Uh, they're they're really at a loss on how to sort of go forward with Haiti and these multilateral uh, institutions they've set up, whether it's the OAS, which is totally discredited, and this statement didn't help, or the United Nations, which now has done uh, two interventions in the past uh, 30 years, which have totally discredited it. Mm-hmm. The U.S. is now coming with this new thing called the Global Fragility Act. Uh, a lot of people haven't seen this. We had a in Haiti Liberté this week, which is essentially to try to set up bilateral relations where they basically wed USAID with the Pentagon and they go and Oh, good. Okay. We're good. Yeah, right. Further, I guess. Yeah. We're going to come in and help you uh, solve your security problems, basically put down the uprisings which are happening among the masses, many of them armed. And um, so they're beginning to move back to the old bilateral uh, uh, maintenance of the empire, because mm-hmm. uh, right now, uh, with, especially with 
Russia and China having vetoes in the Security Council, it's going to be harder and harder to use these um, international, multinational bodies to uh, carry out the maintenance of the uh, empire's neo-colonies. Mm-hmm. I mean, I guess... <laughs> The assessment of the OAS is basically that Haiti Haiti simply cannot at this point foot the bill for uh, to uh, rewrite its society. Right. And that that for that reason, the international community must remain involved. We just have to do it a different way. And I wonder I wonder what you make of this assessment. Right. I uh, you know, as you've said that Haitians would like uh, for the United States and the West to stop interfering at all. Does that mean that do you think that Haiti, you know, without external resources uh, can can you know, that the people of Haiti can achieve their goals or should the role of the international community, you know, in a in an ideal world be just uh, some resources without strings attached at this point? So, I mean, the thing is, that will never happen. It's yeah. possible for the U.S. or really any of the uh, neo-colonial neo- powers to give aid without strings attached. Right. The purpose of the aid is uh, the strings. So, uh, yes, Haiti basically has to, uh, as Samir Amin, the great Egyptian Marxist, used to say, you know, disconnect from the empire completely. You just have to go it alone. I mean, it's not so much different from, say, Elizabeth in England uh, back in the day when, you know, there was a part of the royal court which was saying, oh, we got to go to Spain. They have all the gold. And Elizabeth said, no, we got to make it on our own. And they ended up becoming the dominant power because they they broke with Spain. Uh, In the same way, we see Cuba, we see Venezuela, we see these countries who are saying, okay, (laughs) we are no longer going to uh, take it as accepted that we have to uh, receive aid from the very countries who are sucking us dry, sucking our blood. So uh, let's just cut. You know, we take the take the intravenous out, mm-hmm. and we'll go it alone. We'll we'll find a way, and and they will find a way. And above all, I think now uh, with the new world order, uh, with uh, BRICS and mm-hmm. uh, all sorts of uh, other multilateral possibilities, uh, even though they're somewhat uh, incohate and uh, in an embryonic stage, that there is uh, the possibility that countries like Haiti, as poor as it is, can uh, find its own way. I also wanted to ask you uh, how significant you think these reports are of a huge spike in uh, weapon smuggling from the United States to Haiti. I mean, it's unsurprising, I suppose, as you have increasing violence and, uh, you know, gangs basically controlling the capital, that they're going to need some firepower to uh, maintain their territory. Uh, but is is there anything—should we read anything more into these reports? Well, first, yeah, it's a typical case, really, of, you know, suddenly it's gotten into the press, so they think it's a spike. No, <laughs> weapons have been flowing into Haiti illegally for, for decades. Uh, you know, it's always had very porous ports. You know, people come in, especially the boats coming out of the Miami River, uh, which are, you know, usually little Haitian-owned vessels. And, you know, there are uh, firearms uh, hidden in the refrigerators or in the rice sacks or wherever, and they get down there and they're sold. So that's coming in. Uh, uh, And 
continues to come in. Now they say, oh, we're going to do something about it. And to some extent, this is due to the uh, skirmish that happened between China and the U.S. on the Security Council back in July when the BINU, the U.N. uh, office in Haiti, uh, was renewed. And China was basically saying, listen, you're complaining about all these gangs, but you're the one funding them. You know, all the guns are coming from the U.S. And so the U.S. is kind of having uh, to save face and say, "Okay, we're going to do something about that. We're going to do more inspections of these boats that come out of the Miami River and head down to Haiti uh, laden with guns. Uh, But the other thing I did want to say is about the question of gangs. You know, there's kind of a uh, a simplification of the gang. It's like, oh, well, you know, all these gangs are criminal. No, it's not. You do have criminal gangs, yes, who are doing kidnapping, extortion, uh, rape, and are are uh, preying on the population. But uh, there is uh, the, the reaction to that. There are these what I would what we call vigilance brigades who are armed groups. They're being called gangs. And those are the ones that are most targeted by the U.S., ironically, Mm -hmm. um, which are fighting the criminal gangs and which are saying, no, we do not want kidnapping, extortion, rape, et cetera, and crime in our neighborhoods. We want our, there to be order in our neighborhoods. And But the U.S. equates them, and in fact, the, the ones that they most villainize, they most demonize, are the ones fighting the criminal gangs, which ironically are the ones most in cahoots with the Ariel Denis, uh, the Ariel uh, Henri government. Mm-hmm. And um, like the 400 Maozo, the Katsa Maozo that you heard about last year, which uh, kidnapped 17 North American missionaries, mm-hmm. uh, they have links to the uh, SDP, the, the Democratic and Popular Sector uh, wing of the Ariel Henri government. So um, basically, it's an effort by the masses in these huge uh, shanty towns of Port-au-Prince to defend themselves and to set up a new society. Mm-hmm. Uh, they are armed, and uh, to some extent, the crackdown on arms going in is a way to try to choke them off, and it's preparation, we fear, for uh, U.S. involvement on a bilateral basis through this Global Fragility Act uh, and through these other things that Washington is cooking up so they can get into Haiti without having to go through the Security Council where uh, China or Russia could put a veto. But there's going to be a, a lot to watch. Kim Ives, thank you so much for that. Tell our listeners where they can go to find Haiti Liberté. Well, it's HaitiLiberté.com online. That's Liberté is uh, liberty with an E on the end, <laughs> the French spelling. Uh, and, uh, yeah, we do have an English section there. Most of the paper is in French, but we do have also Creole and English as well. Thank you so much. We really appreciate it. We're going to take a quick break here on Political Misfits and come back with uh, some weird news that John's going to tell me to close out the week. <laughs> We're live on Radio Sputnik. We're in D.C., and we'll be right back. politics and culture without the red and blue treatment. I'm John Kiriakou here with Michelle Witte. 
It's Friday, and that means it's time for News of the Weird, where we bring you some of the more offbeat stories in the news, and we begin today in Bedford County, Virginia. I got this from the Washington Post. I didn't have to, like, search for it on any weird news Uh websites or anything. Washington Post, front page, a couple days ago. It says here, identical twins, Brittany. Did you see this? Yes, I did. Tell tell us all about it. Yeah. Identical twins Brittany and Brianna Dean were inseparable as girls growing up in Delaware. Their lives were so intertwined, in fact, that they hoped one day to fall in love with identical twin brothers and to marry them. Okay. <clears throat> well, Jeremy and Josh Salyers are also identical twins who had the same idea to marry a set of identical twin sisters. So when the two sets of siblings met in 2017 at the annual Twins Day Festival in Twinsburg, Ohio, they all decided this would be the perfect match. So they started dating. They dated for a year. They fell in love. All four decided, yes, this match is the right match. They returned to the Twinsburg Festival and or Twinsville, uh, Twinsburg, and they got married at the festival. Okay. <laughs> okay. Then the women uh, got pregnant mm-hmm. and they both had little boys. Now, the reason why this is all crazy to me is because the boys are first cousins, mm-hmm. right? But because they are both the product of identical twins, their DNA actually means they're brothers. Yeah. Which is nuts. Yeah. I mean, cool, right? Oh, I was thinking if they don't have any other kids and yeah. sort of you have a cousin who's like your brother, who is, yeah. your, is literally and, your brother. And, well, and no, that's no. how they're raising like, them. Genetically is your brother. Yeah. Right. They're raising them as brothers. They, yeah. They even dress them the same way every day. Those kids are going to recognize <laughs> at some point that their parents are weird. Yeah. Because these kids are nuts. not twins. Wait. But Michelle. Okay. There's actually a term for this. Okay. They're called quaternary twins. Okay. And the marriage is called a quaternary marriage. Okay. When an identical twin, when two identical twins marry two identical twins mm-hmm. and have children. I'm pretty sure that's a Pornhub category. If it, if it, if <laughs> it like, isn't, it's going to be soon. It's just an orgy. John, sorry, I don't mean to be vulgar, but it is a Friday. What are the chances that the unmarried twins have not had sex with each other. You know what I mean? That there, that there has not been a spouse right. swap. What are the chances there hasn't been one? I think low. Yeah. You know, I, I went to school. With what's these, the point? Yeah. I went to school <laughs> with these, with these great guys, twi- identical twin brothers, uh, the McDevitts. Uh-huh. And uh, we're still friends on Facebook even. And they used to um, switch seats in class mm-hmm. all the time. Mm-hmm. One of them was really good at science and the other was really good at, you know, like history and social mm-hmm. social uh, sciences stuff. And they would help each other out by taking each other's tests. Mm-hmm. I mean, you know, <laughs> of course, it's just like, yeah, I mean, what a bond. It's a pretty, uh, it, you know, I don't understand it. I'm not a twin. I'm not a twin. Good for them. It. Yeah. Good for them with power to them. Genetically strange. Family. Power to them. Yeah. How about this one? August 12th started as a pretty typical day. For her one and a half year old toddler, Ethan, and uh, and mom, Brittany Moore of Sonoya, Georgia. They were playing with bubbles in the backyard of their home when Ethan chased one of the bubbles to the fence and noticed something in the woods beyond. When his mom asked him what he saw, he said, feet. Oh, no. Ethan discovered 82-year-old Nina Lipscomb, who had been missing for four days. She was alive but disoriented. 
Her daughter said she had wandered away from home where she was uh, nearby home where she was visiting her family. She got confused and lost. Her sister lived here in that. She says, quote, her sister lived here in this house, but passed away in March. Lipscomb said. Wow. So she was looking for her sister. Oh, no. The Lipscombs and the Moors got together later to celebrate the little boy who probably saved the old lady's life. Oh, my gosh. Isn't that something? Yes. That's beautiful. Yeah. I thought that was very nice. Poor woman. Miller Brewing Company, brewers of Miller High Life. Get this. Mm -hmm. They have a new product introduction. I thought this was a joke, actually, when I first read it. So I had to Google it to make sure. I'm not going to make a fool of myself. Mm-hmm. It's called Ice Cream Dive Bar. Okay. Okay. The collaboration with Tipsy Scoop, maker of alcohol-infused ice cream, mm-hmm. comprises all your favorite flavors from a dive bar. Oh. Beer, peanuts, tobacco smoke, caramel, and dark chocolate. That might be really good. <laughs> the bars contain up to 5% alcohol. Wow. That's more yeah. than a lot of, than a Miller High Life. Than a I lot think. of beers. Yeah, that's right. Which you may need after you see the price tag of thirty six dollars for so a six pack. So is it ice cream? It's ice cream. It's a six pack of ice cream. Uh huh. What's the format of the ice? Did you see a picture of this product? No, there were no pictures. But I I envisioned it being in like a six pack of cups. Yeah. Right. That would make sense to me. I'm v- v- I'm very intrigued by well, this product. Call me crazy, but I don't think thirty six dollars <laughs> is terribly unreasonable i mean for whatever for a novelty thing. Yeah. i don't know it's like a, it's pretty expensive for six ice cream bars i want to see it i want them to I, I need to look at this with my eyeballs i think that might be have you ever had wine ice cream no actually it's surprisingly good i got it as a sort of novelty gift mm-hmm. for a friend and you know had had very low expectations but there's some very good wine ice cream oh very interesting yeah uh, mm. i wanted to say one more thing too i found an article uh, also in the Washington Post at the beginning of the week about Ruth's Chris Steakhouse. Okay. Right? Um, I've only been to Ruth's Chris Steakhouse two or three times. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's not my, it's not really a thing for me to go to expensive steakhouses. Yeah, it's just no. not what I do. But um, the two or three times I've been, their steaks have been some of the best I've ever had in my life. And, uh, you know, the place is popular. They, they started off as just a, a single restaurant in New Orleans. And um, the question, the, the the reason that this article was written was to answer the question, why is it called Ruth's Chris Steakhouse? Mm-hmm. It's such an odd, hard to say yeah. name. So it turns out that it was called Chris Chris's Steakhouse, right? Mm-hmm. Chris's Steakhouse. And it did well. Uh, and then in the 70s, this woman named Ruth, newly divorced, Flush with cash. Um, Bought it? She wanted to make something of herself. And Chris, I guess, was an old man. Yeah. And he was willing to sell it to her. But he put this provision in the contract that she couldn't use the name Chris's Steakhouse if she ever moved out of the original building. Oh. Right. So she said, no problem. She had no intention of moving out of the original building. Yeah. She was there for 10 years and then it burned to the ground. Oh, no. Yeah. Well, now what's she going to do? Yeah. So. She wanted to keep the name and, of course, open it at a new location because the building had burned. And he said, nope, the contract says that I get the restaurant back Mm -hmm. if you 
try to use the name. And she was just like, I'm not going to bother coming up with another name. No. So she just put her name on the front of it. (laughs) So it's Ruth's Chris Steakhouse. Steakhouse. Hey, I've got a I've got a news of the weird entry. Yeah. Uh, Joe Biden's approval ratings are up. I saw that. It was very weird. Forty four percent. Mostly, 44%. I mean, you look it, like it, it, the findings are from this Gallup poll that was for basically uh, August up until a few days ago. Right. And so then, you know, they passed the Inflation Reduction Act. Yeah. They did, did a bunch of Killed stuff. And I guess, yeah. yeah. And so I guess a bunch of independents went, well, OK, maybe you're not doing such a bad job. Yeah. So congratulations to Joe Biden having having a big week. We'll see how long it lasts. And we're taking a week off. Yeah, we're taking a week off, guys. We're going to miss uh, going on vacation. We're going to miss most of Affidavit Gate. Sorry. We'll be back after Labor Day. Thanks to everyone who joined us today. Thanks to our producers and engineers. And on behalf of John Kiriakou and myself, Michelle Witte, thanks to you for listening. As always, we'll see you in about a week.